0: good morning everyone great to see you all this morning happy to be here uh, on what could very well be our last day here and so we praise God for what God has done uh, in this building and what he's going to do uh, as we move on and so just just thankful to God I just want to take a second to thank the worship team for for all their fine work this morning thank you want to make two public service announcements our sunday school uh, that is going on at cc's and will happen in the new church is uh it's really been very very good and uh, we're being blessed over there so i would encourage you if you can uh make it over there uh, to make it over there uh and and learn uh, and, and be blessed and the second thing is the men's ministry uh we had i think 13 or 14 guys over there on wednesday night and i thought it was a time of great sharing and and a time where uh Uh, Guys, we're opening up a little bit, and I know that that uh, that is just going to increase and get better as time goes on, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to get in on the ground floor, so uh, come join us Wednesday night at 6.15 uh, at the new building. All right, so uh, we are going to be continuing our study in Acts uh, today, and before we get into the Word, I just want to go to the Lord and and ask Him to bless us today. Lord, we're continuing our journey through Acts uh, today. Just getting started, we have a long way to go, and, and Lord, uh, I ask that you would uh, just bless the word, Lord. You said that your word will never return to you void, but uh, accomplishes the mission uh, that which, which you have purposed for it, Lord. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would come now, uh, do the work, Lord, and uh, may this word uh, be impactful in our lives. May we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're continuing in the book of Acts, and this week we're talking about preparation for the mission uh, that God had for these apostles. And uh, do you know that uh, in the United States, uh, or around the world, the United States is known for having the most powerful military uh, in the entire world? Uh, We have about 1.3 million people in active duty as of the end of 2013. And we have another about 850,000 people who are in uh, the reserves uh, in some form or another. Uh, and, and these people are constantly training uh, for the work that they have to do, for the mission that they are, are being trained uh, to accomplish. And, and they're ready for any potential military situation that might arise. And what they're doing daily uh, is they are training. they're They're making their bodies physically fit, and they're training together so that they can work uh, together as a cohesive unit. And so, the first thing they have to do is make their bodies physically fit, right? There's tons of training that goes on uh, when you're in the military. Uh, that's why uh, they have young guys do it because they're the fittest guys who are able to do it. I'm not able to do it anymore, sadly. Uh, but but uh, the young guys, the guys in their early 20s, they're, they're able to be physically fit and, and they're ready uh, for this kind of mission. And uh, so if they sat around and played cards all day, they would not be ready for whatever mission that, that uh, they were go- going to be called to. Uh, So they have to train as individuals, but not only that, but they have to train together. Uh, When you're an army unit, you can't just train individually, you have to be trained together to work as a cohesive unit, and it's there where they are most successful. Uh, In the same way, Olympic athletes, uh, they train constantly for the work that they have to do. Uh, they're working 10, 12 hours a day, uh, making their bodies physically fit and training for the event that they have to do, whether it be uh, on the track or in the pool or on the ice or wherever, whatever their event may be. Uh, but in team sports, not only do they have to physically train themselves, they, again, have to train together because it's necessary if they're going to function well as a unit uh, that they have to train together. Uh, I spent a lot of my uh, kid's childhood coaching youth sports. Uh, and I have attempted to coach third grade basketball. And if you watch third grade basketball, you see that you have five kids on a court that you're trying to get to do one thing together, but instead what you have is five kids running off in every direction, uh, but where you want them to go. And so it's very hard to train kids to play basketball well. Uh, I've also coached soccer. You want them to spread out, right? Keep space between them. But no, you have a school of 11 kids hovering around the, ba- the soccer ball, uh, chasing it around the field. They're not able to be tra- properly trained uh, for the mission that they have. Uh, so cohesiveness in training uh, is a very important uh, principle uh, that we have. And, and so uh, the, the disciples, the apostles recognized this too. And, and so they were going to go back to Jerusalem and they were going to prepare together for the mission that God had for them. And so uh, this passage that we're going to talk about today documents what these apostles were doing between the time of the Ascension and the time of Pentecost when uh, the the Holy Spirit was to come. And so uh, this week I'm going to give you the application point at the beginning of the point and then I'm gonna use the scripture to validate uh, that point of application uh, as we go. And so what we're gonna see in this passage is that preparing to do the work of God uh, requires unity in, and prayer, uh, it requires being immersed in scripture, and it also requires submission and dependence on God. So, the first point, preparing to do the work of God requires unity and prayer. Let's read verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." So we have this verse uh, specifically give us, giving us the setting. They're telling us uh, that that they were on the Mount of Olives and now they're returning to Jerusalem. And I showed you this picture last week so you can see the, the Mount of Olives uh, on your right there and Jerusalem to the left. It's a very short distance. That's the Dome of the Rock, of course, uh, now on the Temple Mount. Uh, but that's where they were headed back to. And uh, Luke specifically wants us to know that they were very close to Jerusalem where this ascension happened. And And so Luke describes it as a Sabbath day journey away. Uh, Now you know that the Jews were limited in the amount of distance that they were allowed to travel on the Sabbath or else it would be considered work. And that distance was 2,000 cubits, which equals about three quarters of a mile, about a kilometer. So so Luke gives us all this just so that we know uh, that they're very close to the place where the ascension happened. And so when they come back to Jerusalem, they seek out uh, what's called the upper room and And we don't know if this is the same upper room where the Last Supper happened. There are lots of upper rooms in Jerusalem. uh, So it may or may not have been the same upper room. Uh, But what we do know is that it had to be large enough uh, to house a crowd of at least 120. uh, And this number was going to uh, continue to grow. And so... uh, we see that the 11 apostles are all named. You see them all named by name, and Peter, of course, is mentioned first, as he always is, because he's the leader of the group, and he's the one uh, who's the most prominent, and he's the, uh, always the one who speaks first. And so Peter is mentioned first. But once they assembled, it's their attitude toward each other that I think is really remarkable here, and toward the mission that God was giving them to do. That's also really remarkable here. Take a second to think about all that has happened since the night of Jesus' trial. Uh, Peter, for example, on the night of Jesus' trial, denied him three times. And it would have been very easy for these apostles to say, you know what, Peter, you know, anybody who denies the Lord Jesus Christ three times, you're not fit to be among our number. Uh, And they might not have accepted him back. That could have caused a lot of division and strife. Or you could have John. Think about John. He's the only apostle specifically mentioned as being at the cross, watching Jesus die. And not only is he there, uh, but Jesus specifically gives his mother to John and says, John, uh, behold your mother. Uh, Take care of my mother. And so uh, John could easily have said, you know, Jesus has given me a special commission and maybe I should take prominence and leadership uh, over this group. Or you might have had uh, Peter, John, and James saying, uh, we're the inner three. We're we're the ones that Jesus chose out of all the 12 and out of everybody else. He chose us three uh, to witness the transfiguration and various other things that only they got to see. Or you could have had Jesus' family say, "Uh, look, we're the blood relatives of Jesus. We should be the ones. We should be the ones who are uh, leading this group. Uh, And after all, we'll see when we get to Acts chapter 15 uh, that James actually did become uh, the first uh, or the the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so we'll get to that uh, there. We could have seen all this division. We could have seen all of this strife. And yet we see none of this. These guys come together and gals. There are ladies there too. They come together with one mind, uh, with one purpose, and that's to pray and is to glorify Jesus, nobody exalting themselves over anybody else like they used to do. Remember, they had the argument, who among, who among us uh, is the greatest? And give us the ability to sit at your right hand and your left hand. Well, well those days are gone. Uh, they realize that Jesus died for all of their sins, and that we are all servants of him, and we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And that's why it says they were all with one mind, with one mind. Uh, The Greek word is hamathumadon, and we're going to see this word 10 times in the book of Acts. And only one other time in the entire Bible is this word used. And I think that that is uh, Luke's way uh, of talking to us about the unity of this group. Uh, What the word means is it's the unity, the inner unity of people who are working together uh, to achieve outward action. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see this word over and over again, but 10 times here and only one time in the rest of the Bible, and I think that's because Luke is trying to show us what a unique situation we have here. Uh, these uh, apostles uh, and other followers gathered together, setting out for the mission, uh, doing what had never been done before. Uh, and, and Luke wants us to see that this is a very tight-knit group uh, and that they're all going to work together. And, and when I think about them, I think about Grace Redeemer. How can you not? They have a band of 120 people committed to the Lord and training, looking out for uh, whatever it is that God has next for them. And I think we are a band of not quite 120, uh, but a strong, committed band of people devoted to the Lord and waiting, eager to find uh, what the Lord has for us next. And and we're all so excited about what that's going to be. I, myself, am bursting with excitement. I can't wait to see uh, what the Lord has next for us. So. Here, these apostles are united in action, and that action is prayer. They're united in in purpose, continually, with one mind, praying uh, and and praising God. And and it's not one five-minute prayer. Uh, It says that they were continually uh, praising the Lord, and the the tense of that verb means that it's over and over and over again, repeatedly, continuously doing that. And we need to recognize uh, that the power of people... Uh, committed together to prayer can have astounding results. When we get to Acts chapter 12, we're going to read an amazing story about how Peter was imprisoned uh, and he was about to be executed. The next day they were coming for his head and there were people in an upper room praying for Peter and an angel comes uh, and and unlocks uh, Peter's uh, chains and leads him out, opens one gate, opens another gate, puts the guards to sleep and Peter escapes to freedom. This is what the power of people united in prayer uh, can do. God is powerful to accomplish what he wants to do, and he works through the prayers of the people. And so uh, we'll see that over and over again in Acts. And so it's not only these 11 apostles who are praying together. uh, Lots of other people are mentioned too. The women were there. uh, And women are featured very prominently in Luke and in Acts. And so it's not surprising uh, that we see women mentioned here. Uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Susanna, and Joanna are women specifically mentioned by Luke in his gospel about uh, people who are women who were following Jesus, and they were, uh, they were there supporting uh, Jesus and his apostles uh, in service, in prayer, and also giving financial support to Jesus in his mission. And it's not only them, but Mary was there. Mary, the mother of Jesus himself, was there with these people, and they were praying This is the last time that Mary appears in scripture. Interesting that the last time that Mary appears in scripture, she's there in the upper room and she's praying to Jesus with these other folks, uh, praying uh, and and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, She's had her own soul pierced at the cross, uh, at the crucifixion, just like Simeon predicted. Uh, But yet she has seen her son uh, risen again. She's seen her son risen again, and so she's there praying, and she's worshiping, and she's on her knees devoted to prayer. She's not being prayed to. She's there praying with everyone else. Uh, so we have this, the, the women there, and we also have Jesus' brothers mentioned there. Uh, Matthew and Mark mention the brothers by name. We have, uh, we have James. We have Judas, we have Joseph, and we have Simon, specifically mentioned by name. Uh, And Matthew and Mark also mention that there were sisters. We don't know how many, uh, but at least two sisters because it's plural. Uh, And so there's at least those six, and they're probably all there in the upper room, uh, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And all, all who are there are waiting, and they're praying continually and fervently for the promised Holy Spirit. And you know that we are waiting for something too, right? Jesus has promised that he is coming again. And as we sit and we wait, we ought to be praying, just like these first century apostles were waiting as well, uh, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit and praying for what Jesus would have us do until he comes again. Uh, While we wait we should always be in prayer and uh, the book of acts is is just saturated with prayer Uh, prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of acts and it's mentioned in 20 of the 28 chapters so uh, as we go through this we're just going to see that this first century church was filled with prayer filled with the holy spirit uh, as we get past chapter two and praying uh, all the time and so preparing to do god's will requires that we be Uh, of one mind and devoted to prayer. So that's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is that preparing to do God's work requires that we be immersed in Scripture. Uh, Verses 15 to 20. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons were there together and said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share of this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Well, I can imagine that during the 40 days uh, between uh, Jesus' resurrection and His ascension, uh, that these apostles were trying to search their scriptures to figure out exactly what they had seen, what it meant, where it had been foretold and, and what might be happening next. You know, Jesus appeared to them sporadically over this period of 40 days. He was not with them continuously for this period of 40 days. So uh, he's there sometimes and he's not other times. But uh, Luke 24, 45 also tells us that Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures. I would have loved to have been there. Open their mind to understand the scriptures. And so you you have uh, these these guys uh, spending these 40 days before Jesus ascends, and and they're praying a lot. They're searching the scriptures a lot, and they have their mind open to understand the scriptures. Uh, and so I think that that when they weren't praying, uh, or when they weren't with Jesus, these guys were in their Bibles looking to see what might happen next. Uh, and so w- what happens next is that. Uh, Peter had been studying his Bible, and we can see that as we go through, uh, especially chapters 2, 3, and 4, where where Peter is giving these magnificent sermons. Um, He stands up among this group of 120 people, uh, and he's about to begin to speak, uh, and he, he references two prophecies Uh, that he finds in the book of Psalms uh, that David had predicted uh, about uh, what what had just happened. Uh, I'm sorry, Peter is applying these Psalms uh, to what he's seen uh, in the life of Jesus. And and the first Psalm references the defection and the death of Judas. And that prophecy comes in Psalm 69. Uh, And then the other references, what are we going to do about this position now that it's vacant? There's only 11 us. There are supposed to be 12. What are we going to do about it? And so... Peter is going to answer those questions from scripture, but before he does that, uh, Luke wants to insert a little parenthesis here uh, so that his readers who are unfamiliar with Judas would know who he was uh, and what happened to him. And so that's what we see in verses 18 uh, and 19. And, and so uh, Luke says that J- uh, Judas guided those who arrested Jesus. Uh, and, and so he wants us to know that, that uh, he, uh, Judas that is, had a share in in Jesus's ministry. Uh, And then Luke goes on to describe how uh, Judas died and how this field of blood was acquired. And we see that in this little parenthesis, but there's a problem because Matthew has his own account about how this happened. Uh, And it differs a little bit from Luke's account. And so what we wanna do is take a look at Matthew's account and see if we can reconcile uh, some of these differences. So I want us to read Matthew 27, verses three through eight uh, and, and see what, what he says happened to Matthew and how, to Judas and how we can reconcile these things. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Well, the first problem is the manner of Jesus's death, or Judas's death. Uh, it says here uh, that Judas hanged himself, but Luke says that he fell down uh, and burst headlong and and his his intestines gushed out. And so uh, the way to reconcile this is that Judas actually did hang himself, but then probably the rope or the branch that he hung himself from gave way and he fell down and onto a bunch of rocks and then uh, his body burst long, uh, headlong, and his intestines gushed out. Pretty picture, isn't it? (laughs) I think it's meant to describe the uh, gruesome death that, that Judas died uh, as the penalty for or what he had done. Uh, and so the second problem then is that uh, it says that Judas acquired a field uh, with the price of his wickedness, but Matthew says that it was the, the elders and the chief priests who bought the field. So who bought the field? Probably what happened was that the, Judas threw the money back in and, and these guys took the 30 pieces of silver and they went and they bought the the field with the money that had been given uh, to Judas. So it's like when you give your kid five bucks and send him down the block to, to the store to get a gallon of milk or something, uh, you bought the milk because it's your money, but he handled the transaction. So uh, in a way, you both bought the milk, right? Um, that's what's going on here. So uh, it was Judas's money, uh, but the uh, but the uh, chief priests and elders actually bought uh, this this field, and so. The field became known as the field of blood because it was acquired with what was called blood money. Now, incidentally, uh, this field of blood, they they, they think they know where it is. uh, And so I'll tell you, Uh, that is Jerusalem. And it points uh, to uh, this is heading to the north here. And this is the Kidron Valley along the east side. Of uh, Jerusalem and this is the Hinnom Valley along the west side and they meet here right at this junction that's where they think that that the uh, field of blood is and right now uh, this monastery stands there overlooking uh, what is believed to be the field of blood and there are rocks in the neighborhood and so they think that perhaps these are the very rocks that Judas fell headlong onto and had his intestines burst out and gush all over the place so uh, next time you're in Israel you can check out those rocks and see what you see see what you can find there but anyway that's that's what uh, that's what happened to Judas and so Luke wants us to know uh, before he moves on with the story and so uh, what he's going to do now is he's going to allow uh, Peter to return to his speech uh, verse 20 in verse 20 Peter quoted Psalm 69 uh, to show that David's prophecy was fulfilled in what happened to Judas And Psalm 69 is all about uh, wicked and deceitful people uh, getting their due. Uh, And so in verse 25, where this quote comes from, uh, there's a prayer there that judgment will come upon wicked people. And so Peter applies this verse to Judas. He says, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. And so Peter is saying Judas's death is exactly what he had coming to him uh, as the price of his own wickedness. And then Peter then applies uh, Psalm 109 uh, to Judas uh, in deciding that Judas's office must be filled by someone else. So uh, Psalm 109 is another psalm about wicked and deceitful men, and, and David singles out one of these wicked and deceitful men and asks specifically that God rain down judgment uh, on this particular individual. Uh, and so David says, may another take his place of leadership. And so Peter takes this verse and applies it to Jesus, or Judas, I'm sorry, and and decides that his office, the 12th office, must be fulfilled. But the interesting thing is how Peter comes to this conclusion, by a thorough searching and interpretation of scripture. Uh, He doesn't just decide that this ought to be done, he searched the scriptures, and this is what he thought was necessary to be done, and this this illustrates an important principle for us, I think, and that is that the, the Bible is instructive in decision-making, and it is instructive in helping us to know what the will of God is. We can find it there uh, when we study it. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that show on AMC, or I'm not sure what channel it is, but it's the show about uh, Leah Remini and her uh, quest to take down Scientology. Uh, I've seen an episode or two of this show, and it's very fascinating because Uh, people uh, have have been trying to break out of Scientology and Leah Remini goes and interviews them and what she finds from her own experience, she broke out of Scientology, but from her own interviews with these people, she finds that uh, people are required to spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, on books uh, and tapes that they have to read and listen to. uh, And then they have to do various uh, acts of service uh, to the church that are are assigned uh, by by, uh, the leaders of the church And and what happens is that as you read the books, you get to this level, and as you read more books, you get to this level, and you're continuing to try to climb up this ladder of Scientology uh, until you reach uh, uh, the perfect state of, of bliss or whatever it is that they're searching for. Uh, it, it, in Caddyshack, it was called by Bill Murray, uh, I'll achieve total consciousness on my deathbed, so I've got that going for me, which is nice. Uh, so that may be what they're looking for, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but, but, but what they're doing is trying to better themselves, uh, spending thousands and thousands of dollars, in some case millions of dollars, uh, to do this. And... and the, the, pro- the problem is is that, first of all, there is no truth in it, there's no God in it, and the second problem is, is that you never reach the mountaintop. If you were ever to get high enough, they would simply insert another level of things that you need to do so they can continue to collect money from you. And so uh, the carrot is always two feet out of your grasp. You can never get there. And so that's the evil of Scientology. Meanwhile, uh, the church leaders are, are getting wealthy as can be uh, while you are going broke uh, trying to find meaning uh, and purpose uh, for your life. Well, Christianity's not like that. God gave us his son uh, and God gave us a book so that we could find meaning and purpose and direction in our lives. Uh, and it doesn't cost you anything uh, except that you believe. Uh, And the Bible tells us not only what we need for our salvation, Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead so that if you believe that you can be saved, but it also gives us direction about how to live our daily lives, and that's what Peter was doing. He was searching the Bible, looking for what to do next, and so that's the lesson for us. Uh, The Bible is not going to tell you specifically which car to buy, which girl to marry, which job to take. But there are guidelines that we have to stay within. And if we stay within those guidelines, we'll be okay. So a biblical principle is to live within your means. So don't buy a Porsche if you can only afford a Prius, right? That's a biblical principle. Uh, Another biblical principle is not to be unequally yoked. When you're thinking about what girl you're going to marry, don't be unequally yoked. Uh, I'm thankful that Molly didn't know that verse when uh, I asked her to marry me or else, you know, I wouldn't be here right now, Uh, so I'm grateful for that, Um, but that's a biblical principle, don't be unequally yoked, Uh, that's, God's not telling you exactly which girl to marry, but he's certainly telling you what girl not to marry, right, if she's not a believer, don't marry her, and then uh, what about what kind of job to take, well, uh, a biblical principle is to work hard and work ethically. So don't take a job where your boss is going to ask you to fudge the numbers so that he can increase his bottom line. Uh, we have all this kind of guidance in the Bible. It's not exact guidance, but it's guidance enough so that we can know uh, what God would have for us. And following biblical principles, uh, is, is, uh, it, it keeps us in God's will. Uh, so preparing to do God's work, uh, whether you're a pastor a plumber, a podiatrist, or the President of the United States requires being immersed uh, in scripture. And I pray that that would be so on all of those levels. Uh, And so we need to be immersed in scripture. We need to be shaped by it. We need to take our direction from it. I think that's what Peter was doing. And then finally, third, the third thing is that preparing to do God's work requires submission and dependence on God. So let's read verses 21 through 26. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up for us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Well, now that the decision has been made that they're going to fill this seat, they had to figure out what the qualifications for uh, this seat were going to be. And, And so... There were two qualifications, three really, if you count, first of all, that it had to be a man. Uh, but the, first two, the other two are that uh, he had to be with them from the beginning. And that's starting with the baptism of John uh, and all the way through uh, the ascension. Um, you know, sometimes we think that it was only these 12 apostles uh, who were following Jesus around. And so there would be nobody else to choose from. But when we read the scriptures, we see that there were people following him, uh, all over the place, and the women particularly were with him uh, from early on, and so uh, you, have, you have a whole lot of people following him around, and, and so he had to be with them from the beginning, and he also has to be a, a witness to the resurrection, and so uh, for whatever reason, Jesus chose these 12 particular apostles, but uh, there were others that could have been chosen. These 12 were, were chosen for their specific uh, purpose that, that Jesus had for him. And we don't know if there were only two who were qualified, uh, who had been there from the beginning and who had seen the resurrection. There may have been more than that. Uh, We just don't know. Uh, Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that uh, the Lord appeared to over 500 of them at one time. Uh, But that happened in Galilee. So most of those people probably remained in Galilee since we only have 120 people here uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, And Galilee is 70 miles north. And And probably among the 120, some of them are women. uh, Some of them may not have been there from the beginning. Some of them may never have seen the resurrected Lord. So uh, we just don't know how many of them uh, there were who were qualified. But in any event, they only put two guys forward. And we don't know anything about either of these two guys from Scripture, either before or after this event. They appear here uh, and nowhere else. And the only thing that is known about them from secular history was written by Eusebius in the fourth century, so obviously 300 plus years later, uh, and he says that these two were members of the Seventy, uh, which is the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body uh, of Jerusalem, and, and that, those are the people who crucified Jesus, and those are the people that uh, both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, came from. So Uh, If Eusebius is right, what we're seeing in the very early church is that uh, the people in the highest levels of Judaism were recognizing who Jesus was and and were becoming converts and becoming Christians. But I think what's really important here about this passage is that uh, it's not that the, the, the apostles did not believe that they were the ones electing this 12th apostle. Uh, they were convinced that Jesus was in control and in pro, in, in the, uh, his, he was going to be in charge of the outcome. And what we see here is submission to the Lord and dependence on the Lord to make this decision. And so I'm saying preparing to do God's work requires submission and dependence on God. Look what they did. First, they prayed. And this prayer included a statement about the sovereignty of God. They said, Lord, you know the hearts of these men. You show us. Which ones you have chosen to fulfill this ministry? Which one of these have you chosen? And and so this is a great model for how we should pray also. Uh, So often uh, we go to the Lord, I go to the Lord, uh, asking him to validate some decision that I have already made, right? I've made a decision that I'm going to do this and then I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, you want me to do this, right? Even though I've already decided. That's not how we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to approach God with an open mind, with open hearts, and actually let Him be the one who makes the Holy Spirit uh, or makes the decision as the Holy Spirit guides us. And if we're able to do that, then it actually is God making the decision, and not us asking God to validate a decision that we have already made. These apostles had no agenda. Uh, they had no preference for either one of these two candidates. Uh, They recognized that they didn't know the hearts of either of these two guys, but they recognized that Jesus did. Uh, And so, uh, once they they decided that Jesus was going to make this decision, uh, they knew that only Jesus would be able to make the right decision in replacing Judas, who it says turned aside to go to his own place. Uh, And that's an interesting figure of speech or euphemism for hell. Judas turned aside uh, to go to his own place. And, And so, What's difficult is that God appointed Judas for this. John seventeen twelve 12 says, uh, Jesus speaking, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that scripture would be fulfilled. What scripture was fulfilled? Well, probably it was Psalm 41, verse nine, which says that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so even though uh, this had been appointed for Judas, yet Judas is still fully responsible for his decision to reject Jesus. By his own choice, he turned aside to his own place. And in the same way, we are all responsible for the decision that we make Uh, we are one day going to stand before God, and God is going to say to us, what did you do with my son Jesus? Uh, And those who say, I accepted him as my Lord and Savior, are going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my kingdom. And those who don't are going to be sent to the place where there is darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and so uh, we have this difficult thing uh, where we have God's sovereignty, and we have yet Judas uh, being responsible. And so uh, this, of course, brings up the doctrine of election, and, and, and all I wanna say about it is, don't worry about whether you're elect or not. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you believe that, you are elect. Uh, and if you don't, well, then you have, you have chosen by your own free will to turn aside, to go to your own place. I know that's hard, it's a hard teaching, but we have to live with the tension between God's sovereignty uh, his, and our human responsibility. So Judas turns aside to his own place. Now uh, that, we've, uh, that we've had this decision that we're going to make uh, or make a, a decision about who this new apostle is going to be, uh, how are we going to decide? Well, there is this ancient and biblical practice of casting lots to determine uh, how we're going to make decisions. Uh, and, and it's a very interesting thing that they do. Verse 26 that they, says that they drew lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias. Uh, Proverbs 16:33 says, "The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." And so, what you have here is a testimony to the sovereignty of God, even in what would appear to us to be a game of chance. Right? God is in control of all of it, uh, and so it means that that men are able to put into processes uh, or pro- put into place a process by which a, a decision can be made, but ultimately the decision is going to be uh, from God. So. So these lots were used to seek God's will. uh, And and ultimately, uh, this is is going to be God's decision about how it's going to happen. Uh, But what we'll see is that that this is how it worked. Uh, There's this container. And in this container, uh, you put stones and, and you write on the stones the name Matthias and the name Joseph. And they put the stones into this container and they shake the container until one of the stones fell out. And the stone that fell out had Matthias's name on it, and so quite literally, the, literally, the lot fell to Matthias, and that's how uh, he was selected. And, and the apostles recognized and understood from this that it was the Lord's will uh, that Matthias be the one to fill Judas's vacated seat. And, and once the Lord made his choice, then the eleven apostles. Uh, inducted him into the table of apostles. He's enrolled as the 12th apostle. And so, again, you see their submission and their dependence on God uh, in making this decision. This is the last time that lots are used in the Bible. Why is that? Well, it's because we're about to receive the Holy Spirit in the very next chapter. After the giving of the Holy Spirit, we now have God to guide us from the inside about how we make decisions uh, and we don't need to rely on external methods of, of how we're going to uh, make decisions. So we don't roll dice and say, that must have been God's will. And, and we certainly don't uh, cast lots anymore. Uh, we don't put out fleeces anymore. And we say, God, if, if, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, this must be your will. We don't do that anymore. Uh, we trust the Holy Spirit. We read the Bible, we pray, and we ask for God's guidance. God appoint, God's appointment of Matthias as the 12th apostle was the very last thing that happened uh, before the giving of the Holy Spirit. And from chapter two on, everything changed as these apostles, uh, empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, went out and changed the world. And so what I want us to understand from this passage, the whole point, is that changing the world requires unity in prayer, being immersed in scripture, and being fully submitted and dependent on God, and I think if we do these things, we are going to see amazing things happen as we move into our new facility, as already done uh, with this group already, so uh, let's pray to God. Lord God, we thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord God, we thank you that you are a sovereign God, uh, that we can pray to you, and but ultimately, Lord, we, we trust in your decisions, and we trust in your will, and Lord, help us uh, to know that it is your will that, that things come out the way they do. And, and when this is hard for us, Lord, when when it seems like the lines have not fallen in favorable places to us, Lord, uh, help us to understand that it's only for a time. And Lord, that your will is better than our will. Lord, help us to, to recognize these principles, that we must be submitted to you. We must be in prayer to you. We must be dependent on you. We must be immersed in scripture. And then it is that we will find your will for us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done and all that you are going to do. And Lord, we just love you. We worship you today. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross so that we might have life. We thank you and we praise you in his matchless name. Amen.